Hello, Theologizers. Welcome back to the Theo Bros Podcast. I am Brett, as always, one half of the Theo Bros here for episode 27, alongside my brother, Benny Boy 3000. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great, Toots. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's, uh, well, it was cooling off down here in Florida for a second, and now it's hot as blazes again, so I'm still waiting for the the fall feels to kick in, but it has yet to do that down here in Florida. How are things up there in New York? Uh, it's beautiful. It's uh, peak fall weather right now, and all the uh, all the trees have turned all the brilliant colors. Uh, my wife and I uh, went apple picking at an apple orchard the other day, um, so things are things are nice up here. I'm jealous of your fall foliage. Yeah, man. Dude, I got fall fauna and freaking flora up here for days, man. Well, I'm about to take a trip to uh, Montana with a couple of my friends, so uh, I'm sure I'll get plenty of uh, fall foliage and uh, all the, the great fall atmospheres up there here next week when I leave. Heck yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. So anyway, um, this week, or this week, I always say that. How about this month? <laughs> um, we're going to start a new Theo Bros series, and the name of the series is going to be Scripture's Native Language. So what this series is going to be is we're going to start taking a look at the Bible, how the forefathers, not the forefathers, <laughs> the, Four, the church- four and seven years <laughs> The church fathers read the scriptures, how um, the Jews read the old scriptures, the old scriptures, the Old Testament. Man, I'm really on a roll right now. Um, and, and and how how they approached their interpretation, the readings of the Holy Bible, and how we're not doing <laughs> what they do and what me and uh, my brother here, Ben, thinks is the appropriate way to read the scriptures. We're just totally dropping the ball and modern christianity um and we just want to take a look at different themes that are uh that are seen throughout scripture old testament and new uh, throughout the bible throughout the the grand story that god is telling through um the the word of god and we're going to look at these different symbols that appear um, frequently, and how uh, how we should be looking at these symbols and uh, what these symbols mean in the context of uh, of the Bible. Um, so right. each week we're going to pick one symbol and uh, do a deep dive into that. And that was a horrible, a horrible summary of what we're doing. But Ben, why don't you help uh, bring clarification? No, that was that was that was great, Brett. I just want to add that. Uh, so I kind of decided to call it Scripture's native language specifically, because as you said, Brett, um, the one of the, if not the primary mode uh, in which the church fathers and the New Testament writers, and even um, you can see this in literary structures in the Old Testament as well, were reading their own scriptures. Um, was through a symbolic and typological lens. And so I called it Scripture's Native Language because I think as moderns, we tend to overemphasize 
just what the text literally states. Whereas I want to say that scripture's native language is more in type and symbol and illusion. Okay. Um, so I think a lot, if not most, of what scripture is trying to communicate to us is through typological, symbolic, and elusive or spiritual meaning, as opposed to just a straightforward statement um, about what the theological message of a particular book or passage or event is. So that's what I wanted to, uh, yeah, do this kind of mini series about. And like Brett said, each of these short episodes is just going to briefly discuss one of those symbols or typological motifs throughout scripture um, that we can see have a kind of a consistent meaning in the way that they're used throughout salvation history. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's something that us modern evangelicals have an especially difficult time with. Um, our friends over at the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, I think they um, have the ability to read the scriptures in more of the symbolic um, way because they have this, these great traditions that have taught them to do so and have had commentators on scriptures and theologians throughout their history that they can reference that um, show them ways to, to, to read scripture with the authority of their tradition um, with modern evangelicals, you know, we're such Bible first and nothing else um, with no tradition or no education or um, authority to help guide our reading of scripture. Um, I think that the easiest way to go when it's just your Bible and you, which is the way a lot of the evangelicals approach the Bible is to just read it literally and, and it just is what it is on the page. But um, looking at not the founding fathers, but the church fathers and um, uh, authorities on scripture uh, throughout the, the years, throughout the, the decades and the, the centuries and the millennia have, um, have approached scriptures quite differently even before the reformation in our short history of modern evangelicalism uh, with this more symbolic reading. So I think us, especially evangelicals can sit at the feet of some of these, especially early church fathers um, to learn right. <laughs> how to read scripture. I just got the image of, 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 of humblies <laughs> sitting at the feet of these saints. <laughs> oh yeah, man. With their, with their beards just sitting on our heads. <laughs> just drinking in their wisdom. Yeah. So anyway, this week has been, I don't know if you, you've said this or not yet, but we're going to be looking at the first thing that we're going to be approaching in this series, um, the symbology of water. Yes. Um, um, and before we, we begin, again, kind of to go off part of what Brett said, I think part of the reason this is difficult for us as modern Westerners you know, post-enlightenment way of viewing the world and reading texts um, is because we tend to make a sharp differentiation between a quote-unquote literal and a quote-unquote spiritual interpretation 
of a text. And the reason that we sharply divide these two things as if they can't both be true at once and to be and be interconnected is because we've lost the symbolic or sacramental cosmology of our Christian forebears. So for people like Paul, uh, for people like the ancient Israelites, for people like Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, all of our Christian forebears thought that creation itself has a meaning. And so there is a God-given meaning in cosmic realities, right, in nature. So in there's a divine spiritual meaning that trees participate in, that the heavenly bodies participate in, that the earth participates in, that under the earth participates in, that mountains and rocks and clouds participate in. Um, after the scientific revolution, even if we're still Christians, I think we've kind of implicitly imbibed this idea that reality, the natural world has no kind of intrinsic meaning to it, but we just impose meanings on it through kind of arbitrary metaphors and similes. But this is not the cosmology of our Christian forebears. They thought that because creation is the creation of a God that imbues things with meaning, with his logos, that because creation is a manifestation of a storytelling God, that the events and objects in the cosmos are actually imbued with spiritual meaning and participate in spiritual realities. And because of this, we can't distinguish a the literal from the spiritual because the literal always participates in the spiritual reality, always participates in the logos. And That's so, a good point. That's a good point. But I'm sorry to cut you off real quick, but it seems like so many um, modern Christians, they're always trying to divide physical and spiritual, whether it be um, their own like lives as physical beings being divided from a supposed just pure spiritual afterlife where we're just floating orbs up in the, the thither <laughs> or in scripture itself, where you, you know, the literal interpretation is more of that sort of blunt physical reality. And the, uh, the more symbolic interpretation is, is, is more of that spiritual reality. And yet we don't, as a lot of modern uh, Christians don't think, and, and remind ourselves that our faith is physical and spiritual come together and union. Right. And that goes to, that goes, that, that has so many ramifications, including our view, like I said, of the afterlife of, of uh, um, the final destination of the universe and of, of, of heaven and how all that works out, but also in, in scriptural interpretation as well. You know, it's always right. this division rather than unity. And that's why, because we lack this cosmology, that's why especially a lot of Protestants will feel as if spiritual or allegorical interpretations of the scriptures are a kind of arbitrary imposition mm -hmm. on, on the text, right? And the reason, again, I think they tend to think that is because implicitly they're not recognizing 
that the re the concrete physical reality that the text is really referring to already was saturated with a spiritual meaning with a participation in divine and spiritual reality so people say oh if you're saying it's allegorical or spiritual you're somehow implying it didn't happen but that is not at all how the church fathers or the new testament writers thought about it they thought that it did happen and what actually happened already typified a spiritual or mystical reality so there's no bifurcation between this right yeah it's almost like they're the, the the detractors from this sort of um reading of scripture would say you know you're just imposing these um these symbolic uh metaphor type readings onto the the literal text rather than how we would look at it and i, I think what the truth is how the church fathers look at it is like you were just saying ben that the spiritual realities in these in these literal readings are already there underlying the the literal and the physical realities and that bringing out the spiritual symbolic meanings from these is just almost digging and finding the gold that's already existing yeah. there we're not like imposing some outside spirituality onto the literal or physical yeah of the text it's it, it's almost like finding the 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 diamond within the physical i mean i'm sorry the spiritual meaning uh behind the text that's already there right so right um anyway let's let's get into it so we'll let's, see uh, we'll see kind of how this works out in practice as we go through the series so as brett said we're going to begin with the theme of water throughout scripture and as we'll see again, whether we're talking about water or rocks or mountains or trees, that there is a supernatural consistency to the theological significance of these um, symbols throughout scripture. Um, and again, they're not mere, they're symbols in the sense that the thing itself, water in reality, not just what the text says about water, but water in reality has a spiritual meaning right? Because a, a God through his logos, his meaning and being logos has created nature. Okay. So um, let's begin. As with most symbols and typological patterns in scripture, I think the meaning uh, or spiritual significance of water is first established in Genesis. Now, I want to argue that um, we find there that water symbolizes three interconnected spiritual realities throughout Scripture. First is creation through the life-giving spirit. Second is chaos and death. And third is purification. So let's take a look at each of those in turn. Um, so, Brett, why don't you start us off with... Um, the first time we have this association of water and spirit in the Bible. Yeah. So as you just mentioned, um, we first find the image of water in Genesis all the way in the back into the beginnings of the Bible in the creation story. And um, we find it with, uh, with those early passages. I'm sure most people are familiar with where the spirit of God is hovering over the waters 
which is the moment when this uh, creative effort by God begins. Um, this occurs on the first day of creation, and water is the the almost the clay or the uh, the initial substance that that is there as God begins to to create the physical universe. Um, so from everything that we see in the, in our world, in our universe today, us, nature the animal world, everything, the stars all comes from this initial symbol of water, um, which, which is what has given life in the creation story in Genesis to the entirety of the, uh, and the variety of the, you know, the physical creation that we have and see around us today. So that's the first time in scripture where water is used um, as the sort of life-giving spirit substance um, all, all the way at day one of the creation story in Genesis. Right. And as you said, Brett, I think you were mentioning day two of the creation that the origin of life is in the sea um, in the process of creation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so to go to the actual scripture reading... Um, from Genesis, it says that, let's see if I can find it here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Right. And then as we proceed through Genesis, on to the next major water event, which is, of course, Noah's flood we see a similar motif playing out. Now, many scholars have noted that the flood narrative um, is really a narrative of decreation and then recreation. So just like at the beginning, um, in the initial creation, water, the primordial waters covered the face of the earth, and only then did the spirit begin to divide you know, the land from the water, divide the waters from the waters and have life emerge. And the same thing happens when Noah, with Noah's flood. So God destroys the old world, right? The first world that's been corrupted by Adam and his descendants with water. But Noah is saved on the waters, right? And when Noah lands um, back um, on Mount Ararat, again, we see the land appearing from the waters, just like in the initial case with the initial creation account. And the second bird that Noah um, sends out is a dove. And of course, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, especially the New Testament, that the dove um, is a symbol of the Spirit. So once again, we have the Spirit uh, hovering over the waters. Now, another interesting thing about this kind of recreation story of the flood is it says in so Genesis 8, 1 through 3, this is an interesting passage. So it says that God remembered Noah and all the animals and livestock that were with him in the ark, and God sent a wind over the earth, and the waters began to subside. Now, some of you might know that the Hebrew word for spirit is the same for wind or breath. And so once again, we says, and God sent a wind, right? 
over the waters, and this causes the waters to begin to subside and land appears, once again, like in the initial creation story. So as we move forward through Genesis, we get again this motif of water being associated with the life-giving spirit and creation in the life-giving spirit. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's the, that's the first theme that you see throughout scripture. And we'll hit on two more of these uh, overarching themes of water and, and the, the symbol, symbolic uh, meaning behind um, how it's used in the text. And the, the second one we'll look at is, is the idea not only of this um, creation through this life-giving spirit, but also water being used as a symbol of chaos and death, almost the opposite of what we're, we're talking about, we just talked about. Um, so going back to the, the passage that, that we just looked at, that we just quoted in um, the first chapters of Genesis um, in the creation story, um, it, it, it talks of the waters as being this sort of chaotic cosmic water that God speaks order into. Um, and this isn't just seen in, in the, the creation story in scripture, this sort of, um, idea of the waters being sort of chaotic and, and not controllable is, is in, in creation stories is seen in other myths throughout history not just the biblical creation story where the gods must bring order to these chaotic waters. Um, but the differences in all these, all of these myths, the gods do it through some sort of violent means. Whereas as Yahweh, the God of the Bible does it through just a pure command. He speaks the order from the chaos. Um, right. So in the Babylonian creation story, um, I think it's Marduk who in their creation myth, he has to overcome the primordial chaos, right? Which is represented again as waters, the primordial waters um, by overcoming the uh, water dragon called Tiamat. And so Marduk has to fight and then he cuts up uh, Tiamat and then divides and distributes the body parts of Tiamat, who is the chaotic water dragon in order to create. So you also see this kind of polemical aspect of the creation account in Genesis of saying, no, the true God does not have to overcome anything in order to create and bring order. He simply does it through his word. Yep. Yep. So then let's briefly move on to the third and then we'll, we'll look at the overarching theme that we see in all three of these, these themes that we're hitting on right now. But the third, the third major theme that we see um, from this idea of water is purification. Um, this is the symbolic meaning of water that ties uh, the, these, these first two ideas, um, water being life-giving spirit, and the also, the, also the chaos and kind of death theme seen in water. Um, purification is simultaneously the destruction, like this chaotic death uh, or washing of, away of what is evil, but at the same time, the restoration, there's the life-giving spirit theme at work, um, and salvation of what is good. That is what purification is. It's the, it's the washing away of the, what's, what's bad and, and the, the restorativeness of what's good. 
Um, and that's seen in a few examples in scripture. You know, the earth, one of the main ones has, has been, we've been talking about already, the earth is purified in the flood, the destruction of the wicked, the salvation of Noah and Israel is purified, um, and, uh, through, well, not Israel, I'm sorry, but the, 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 whatever you want to call them, the, the, the evil peoples in Noah's day. But then you also see this idea of purification uh, with the Red Sea and the Israelites coming out of captivity out of Egypt and um, the Red Sea being parted, uh, the destruction, which ends up being destruction for the Egyptians who are pursuing them, but salvation for Moses and the Hebrews. Right. Yeah. So then we also see, of course, the temple uh, ritual purification um, cultic purification that's associated with washing with water, of course, that the priests have to engage in, um, <clears throat> which again represents in the Old Covenant the destruction of that which represents death and sin and the restoration of sanctity or holiness before God to allow them to come into the presence of God. Um, and of course, one of the, if not the fundamental reality that creation, chaos, and death, and purification aspects of water point to is baptism. And mm -hmm. the New Testament authors explicitly make this, this kind of typological um, connection. Um, so that's kind of the accumulation of this water theme, is the, the, the idea and the, the theme of baptism, which is obviously explicitly in the New Testament. The New Testament out of Jesus and obviously the New Testament writers um, are now looking back at the old Hebrew scriptures, now our Old Testament. And just like we look back and, and read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and Christ crucified, they were doing the same with this idea of water. Looking back at the Old Testament, now knowing what, bapti what baptism is you know, from the teachings of Christ. And seeing this sort of uh, same baptismal idea in the Old Testament scriptures, which they would, which the you know the Hebrews in the Old Testament would not have have seen at the time, but now that these New Testament authors are looking back through the lens of Christ, they can see Christ's fingerprints all over the Old Testament story and the Old Testament scriptures, especially the idea of baptism, which. Like we've been talking about again, going back to the um, the flood and Noah, you know, when we get baptized, we go under the water, which symbolizes a sort of death to ourself and the sort of cleansing of our sin. And then we are lifted up out of the water, made anew, cleansed, um, alive in Christ. You right. see this sort of we also death. Have this. Go ahead. I was going to say you see the death and the flood story of Noah and then this sort of resurrection of humanity through Noah and his family from the flood. Also the Red Sea, again, like we had just mentioned, um, the death of the Egyptians and the captivity of the Israelites and then the renewal of God's people, bringing them in eventually into the promised land. Right. And then, of course, Jonah is another um, theme from the Old Testament uh, associated with baptism that, that's, that's picked up. Um, by Jesus, right? So Jesus explicitly um, identifies his own death and three days um, being dead with Jonah being three days in the belly of the whale, right? He's swallowed by the whale or the, the chaos creature, Leviathan, 
right? Christ is swallowed by the Lord of death, Satan, who's symbolized by Leviathan in the Old Testament, um, under brought under the chaotic waters of death. And then on the third day, uh, raised again. And Christ refers to his death, not only as a kind of um, anti-type of the Jonah story, but he also refers to it as his baptism, which is interesting. So again, we have that, yeah. we have that connection. Once and that's again, what Christ, yeah, that's what Christ is doing. And I think wants to do in all of our individual lives too, as Christ followers is it's this process of um, cleansing us, you know, constantly day to day from our sin, from our selfishness, our ego, um, all of these things that are um, in conflict with love, with selflessness, you know, all the, the fruits of the spirit and, you know, the, the true version of humanity that God wants to bring all of his children into, which right. is, is, is a constant daily kind of baptismal through this image of water um, process that I think we all go through as Christ followers. And, um, you know, that's, that's God's method of eventually um, purifying us and bringing us into the fullness of humanity and the fullness of um, life that he wants to give us. Um, right. Right. And Christ refers to that, that spiritual reality of our renewal in the spirit uh, to the woman at the well, for example, as living water welling up mm -hmm. within you to eternal life. Yeah, God himself, Christ himself being an image of, of, of water as well, living water. You know, we all know how it feels to be parched, you know, and then to have that glass of water finally and just how how just nourishing it is when you're drinking that in and how needed it is. And um, what a great image on our, our just our desperate need of Christ and the renewal and the life and the the rest and the restoration that He can bring to us um, when we need Him. You know, when especially when things get hard, um, God is that living water for us, available to us. Um, right. We just need to to come to come to Him and uh drink drink that living water through through scripture through prayer um so it's it can be it can be kind of a terrifying image but can also be a very beautiful image at the same time right and then i think perhaps one more uh, interesting connection again and it shows how even one particular symbol can end, ends up kind of connecting in indirect ways to all the others and so there is another key symbol in the old covenant for purification, um, and that is circumcision, right? The sign of the covenant, right? Of being set apart by God, being pure before God in covenant relationship with him. Ben, we're doing so well. You know, we're ending on a good note, and you got to bring circumcision into the conversation. The I had minute. to do it. I had to do it. Okay. And it's because the New Testament writers did it. Right. All right, fair enough. As Paul makes the direct connection between circumcision as the means of entry to the old covenant and baptism as the means of entry to the new covenant. And even in the Old Testament, there's at least one significant moment where these two motifs are directly uh, connected or they intersect. Uh, 
which is when Joshua and his armies are going into the Holy Land after they cross the River Jordan, which once again is a part for them to get across. And after they go across, Joshua commands the people with him, or at least the soldiers with him, to circumcise themselves, right? And of course, circumcision is a cutting off of flesh, right? Cutting off of that which is sinful or evil or symbolizes that and purifying oneself. Just like in Noah's flood, God says, I will cut off all flesh, right? So all these things end up being connected. I know. And then when you start to see these connections, you start to realize how how scripture really is a, a, a whole it's 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 a lot it's many different small pieces of work different genres written in different parts of history but then you when you start to see this the overarching symbolic meanings and the connections you know across the vastness of scripture then that's when your eyes begin to be more awakened to god's actual hand on scripture and you can actually tangibly see what we all like to say but rarely unpack that the scripture truly is inspired and the word of God. Right. So let's, let's end on this one uh, scripture, just because baptism is the, the main theme we see for, for this idea of water. And um, it comes from Luke three, 21 through 22. And it says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. There it is. So may we all cling to the same Jesus, to the same Christ right. from this passage in Luke. And remember that today. all all symbols, all the sacramental realities of nature and scripture and the sacraments of the church, they all are fundamentally a participation in Christ. Christ is the ultimate anti-type of which all the other types are shadows. All, as Paul would say, all the promises of scripture find their yes in Christ. And I think we could add all the types of scripture and nature find their participation in Christ and the reality of the eternal logos. Amen and amen. All right, Theologizers, uh, we went a little over time, but, you know, there's just too much good stuff to dig into with, with the, the symbol, symbology of water. Um, we hope to see you next time on the Theobros podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, and we will uh, we'll talk to you soon, Theologizers. Later. This is the Theobros podcast. <laughs>